Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. Hi, Jana. It's great to be here. Today, we're reading Chapter 2 of Origins of Totalitarianism. It's titled The Jews, the Nation State and the Birth of Antisemitism. It's much longer than the first chapter and has five subchapters. Arendt distinguishes between social anti-Semitism and political anti-Semitism. And uh, this chapter is about political anti-Semitism. Could you explain the difference between the two and how they are connected in Arendt's view? I do wonder if social discrimination did not pave the way for the Uh, later political discrimination, and if it's not a bit more continuous than Arendt argues. Yeah, thanks, Jana. Um, these are really complicated questions of social and political anti-Semitism. I think it's it's important for us to actually make a further distinction, which is that there's ancient and medieval anti-Semitism, and then there's modern anti-Semitism. And uh, the difference there is that Ancient and medieval anti-Semitism is more what she calls Jew hatred. It's a more religious, um, the idea of God's providential justice or the idea that, um, you know, Jews are kill Jesus or whatever it is. And it's often based in a kind of really dislike and, and hatred of the Jews, uh, as well as, you know, other localized uh, interests around pogroms or other things terrible and bad but but ancient and and limited in its way then there's modern anti-semitism which she thinks of as an ideological movement uh, an ideological movement in the sense that it offers quasi-scientific arguments for why the jews are the cause of all sorts of political and social maladies and ills it now mobilizes a kind of a scientific thinking where in the 18th and 19th centuries social scientific thinking to argue that there's something about the jews that makes them undermine society and they need to be uh either expelled or killed as a result then within modern anti-semitism she then breaks it into political and and social And the, you know, from her later writing, people who know her work will will understand the difference between um social questions and political questions. Social questions are concessions, questions around society. And in society, there are differences and inequalities and and distinctions. And, and that's natural in society. There are, you know, uh Jewish clubs and, and Gentile clubs. There are um chess clubs and backgammon clubs, and and people make distinctions. Whereas in politics, for her, everyone is supposed to be equal. Uh, and so there's a, a fundamental equality of, of all citizens uh, that is at the root of, of politics. So in this chapter, chapter two, she's interested in the question of how political anti-Semitism emerges, how it is that uh, parties begin to emerge in the 19th century that uh, want to use anti-Semitic rhetoric to argue against 
uh, Jewish rights and again and, and in favor of discrimination and even expulsion into the 20th century and murder uh, into the 20th century of the Jews. And so she's interested in that in that emergence of of this kind of really dangerous political anti-Semitism as an ideological political argument. Uh, in in chapter three, which we'll read in the next session, she's she's interested in the idea of how this idea of the Jew as um, a kind of universal character uh, emerges in, in the modern age. And there's no doubt that the widespread and rapid emergence of social anti-Semitism paves the way for political anti-Semitism. She not only admits it, she argues it. And so there is a connection between them. But what she says is, in this chapter, she says that you there's a moment uh, in which it shifts from social to political. And seeing that moment and understanding it is absolutely essential. And that's what she's after in this chapter. Great, thank you. Yeah, there's there's a lot in this chapter and it's, it's so long and I'm looking forward to diving into it with you in a moment um, when you when you give us your reading. I just have one more question connecting it to today. Um, the chapter is uh, about also about several paradoxes in connection to the Jews. One of them is according to Arendt, the contradiction between statelessness and certain privileges connected to the state. And what do you think would she see today? Would she be concerned with the powers that oppose assimilation and give special privileges as it serves the interests of the powers that be? Um, do you think we see that anywhere today? Well, that's a really complicated and uh, thorny question. But yes. Um, so yes, I mean, the, the first part of this chapter is 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 on what she calls the equivocalities of emancipation and the Jewish state banker. And, and the equivocalities of emancipation, there's three of them that she that she talks to. Uh, the first one is simply that the Jews were on the one hand claiming equality. And, and by the way, it's not all Jews, but um, those few wealthy banker Jews and others they brought with them were claiming to be equal in a growingly in a growing world of European equality, political world of equality. Well, at the same time, they were, they achieved that equality by being granted privileges. So Jews themselves were not made citizens, but certain Jews, court Jews, banker Jews, um, were given these privileges. And so there was a weird way in which instead of just granting them equality, they gave them the status of certain kind of results of equality, but through privileges, not through general um, equality. And what she says is that alongside the fact that these Jews were therefore connected across Europe as Jews, but not really ever full citizens or Germans or French or or, or Dutch or whatever, meant that the Jews had an interest in actually not being fully equal uh, insofar as they wanted to remain Jews. They didn't want to become just Germans or French. They wanted to be different. And, and so the states needed them to be different and didn't want them to be full equal citizens. And the Jews wanted themselves to be different so they didn't have to assimilate and remain Jews. And, and these privileges were a way of allowing them to get privileges without giving up their difference uh, and uniqueness. And, and the chapter traces the way in which this association of the Jews with the state helped the Jews for a certain amount of time. But once the state, the nation state, came to be seen as an obstacle to certain political movements, uh, and once people started to think that the state was actually interfering with the um, imperialist ambitions of and the internationalist ambitions of certain groups, whether it was an international workers class or a pan-German class or a pan-Slavic class, the association of the Jews with the state actually led to anti the emergence of anti-Semitic parties where um, the Jews were seen as privileged associations with the state and this seen and people that could be criticized alongside the state. You know, there's 
no doubt that many minority groups uh, in our current political world have similarly, for a whole host of reasons, both from the state's point of view and from their own point of view, made a similar choice that the Jews made, which is to seek privileges rather than um, assimilated full equality, right? So whether it's um, questions of affirmative action or, you know, certain advantages for certain minority-owned businesses or women's-owned businesses or quotas, like Jews used to have a quota or or other people have quotas in, in universities and businesses, there's a way in which uh, certain minorities and certain segments of certain minorities have have sought privileges and the privileges have an advantage. Uh, first of all, I have an advantage for the state, which doesn't have to grant full equality to everyone. And it also has an advantage for the minorities, right? Which is that um, they can remain Jewish and they can remain women and they can remain African-American or whatever minority you are and retain their differences uh, and yet get certain privileges. Of course, just like in the Jews in the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe, the privileges generally go to the wealthier, more connected and more educated minorities. And uh, it allows for the state to uh, achieve some equality, but without um, providing equality to everyone. Uh, and, and that's an advantage some people find in the state. And, and there was also an advantage to certain of the um, more powerful and better off Jews or minorities today. So I think uh, her analysis is actually quite fascinating and um, raises really uh, fascinating and, and important questions about how we think about questions of, of equality and privilege around certain minority groups today. Thank you so much, Roger. All right, welcome everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, and it's my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, you'll hear the rain pounding in the background for those of you here in New York. We are uh, reading in the virtual reading group, uh, Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, one of the great books of the 20th century. And the book is an attempt to understand, uh, to comprehend, to face up to in an unpremeditated way the horrors of early and mid 20th centuries. One of the key uh, aspects of the book is to say that anti-Semitism was not an accident. It was not something that was, you know, uh, unimportant to the rise of totalitarianism and the rise of, of, of Nazism in particular, and that it needs to be looked at. Um, she has this first book, including four chapters on anti-Semitism, which is about 100 pages and a, a large part of the book, and is not always clear, you know, what the role of all of these chapters are. Um, a lot of it is, as she sometimes says, well, look, she did all this research into it. She was really engaged in it, and she felt that there wasn't another good book on anti-Semitism, and she wanted to publish this research. And so at times it can seem unwieldy. I mean, this is a long chapter of around 40 pages. And I think it's sometimes difficult um, when you're reading it with all the footnotes and all the facts and all the names, you can get lost. And so I'm going to try and, and try and make sense of, of what she's actually trying to do in this chapter and why it's so important. So remember that Chapter one of the volume anti-Semitism uh, was on the was on the idea of common sense and anti-Semitism as an outrage to common sense. And in chapter one, she addresses four common sense understandings of anti-Semitism, all of which she says are wrong. Right. One is that anti-Semitism is related to nationalism, so that nationalists don't like Jews. She says that's wrong. In fact, anti-Semites were mostly anti-nationalists, internationalists. Secondly, that anti-Semitism is related to Jews' power and wealth. And she says that's wrong, too. In fact, anti-Semitism emerged around the time when Jews were losing their power, even though they kept their wealth. Third is that it teaches that anti-Semitism emerges as because Jews were the scapegoats. And she says that's wrong. Um, because we have to ask why the Jews were picked. 
and not the bicyclists. And then fourth, um, she talks about the fallacy of eternal anti-Semitism, which she says, again, is wrong and simply normalizes Jew hatred and anti-Semitism and doesn't teach us uh, you know, what is really behind it and therefore how we can resist it. So this second chapter, uh, which we're reading today, the Jews, the nation state, and the birth of anti-Semitism, gives you a big part of the answer, or her answer, in, in the title. The Jews and the birth of anti-Semitism, and what's between them is the nation state. A huge part of the answer is going to be here, that the emergence of anti-Semitism as a kind of ideological blaming of the Jews for all sorts of world evils can't be understood through these fallacies that she talked about last week in the first chapter, but has to be understood through a, a real uh, inquiry into the forms of government and the Jews' relation to both the government and the state on the one hand and to society on the other in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that made it such that when parties or demagogues or groups wanted to attack the Jews, they had a ready audience. And she says it wasn't just, you know, eternal anti-Semitism or cultural anti-Semitism. Something else was at play. To look at this on pages nine to 10, so at the end of chapter one still, she outlines the rest of the volume on anti-Semitism. And she says at the bottom of page nine, modern anti-Semitism must be seen in the more general framework of the development of the nation state, right? That's the key point. We've got to understand the rise of anti-Semitism as a political factor through the rise of the nation state. And, and I just want to add to that. So one of the hard parts of her approach to anti-Semitism is her distinction between political anti-Semitism and social anti-Semitism. This is not a distinction we make today when we talk about anti-Semitism or about racism or about sexism or about transism or about any other ism today. We combine them. She separates them. And so chapter two, what we're reading today is about political anti-Semitism. And chapter three, which we'll read next week, is about anti-Semitism. And she thinks they're very different and importantly so. And while social anti-Semitism can lead to all sorts of discrimination, social discrimination, you're not allowed into this club, you're not allowed uh, to work these jobs, can't be on this golf course, whatever it is, political anti-Semitism is different. Political anti-Semitism actually seeks to take away your rights as a citizen, not to run a particular club, but to be part of the country and to engage in voting or holding office or even allowed to live uh, in the country. And she thinks social anti-Semitism can be uncomfortable, but not dangerous, whereas political anti-Semitism is deeply dangerous. And so in looking at political anti-Semitism, which is the chapter of, which is the focus of chapter two, She's looking at it through what she calls the development of the nation state. And she says, we have to combine that with aspects of Jewish history and specifically Jewish functions during the last centuries. So the nation state begins to emerge in France in the 17th century. And by the late 19th, early 20th century, in her mind, the nation state is falling apart. That rise and fall of the nation state is the background for the rise of what she calls modern anti-Semitism. Modern anti-Semitism is political and ideological anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism that seeks to provide an ideological, quasi-scientific justification for why the Jews have to be either expelled or killed uh, in order to solve certain political problems. And she says that only if we look at um, this confluence of the rise and fall of the nation state and the rise of anti-Semitism, can we understand how anti-Semitic slogans proved the most effective means of inspiring and organizing great masses of people 
or imperialist expansion and destruction of the old forms of government. And so that's what this chapter, uh, chapter two, the Jews, the nation state, and the birth of anti-Semitism uh, is really about. It has five parts. The first part, and um, I think the part that's theoretically, historical, theoretically, the most interesting and important is called the equivocalities of emancipation and the Jewish state banker. The fundamental argument here, which he lays out right at the beginning, uh, is that the nation state at the height of its development in the 19th century um, granted its Jewish inhabitants equality of rights. Right. This is the emancipation edicts that happened in the 19th century. But there's a deep and faithful contradiction, she says, hidden behind the abstract and palpable inconsistency that the Jews received their citizenship from governments which in the process of centuries had made nationality a prerequisite for citizenship and homogeneity of population when the Jews were not homogenous. Right. So what's the equivocation, the equivocality of emancipation? Well, and in its most basic sense, it's that the Jews were made equal by giving them privileges first. And the people who were given privileges were largely bankers, Jewish bankers. They were given uh, the right to live and even given uh, aristocratic titles and live equally and, and have full rights, um, not because uh, they were equal like everyone else, but because they were given a special privilege because the states needed them. And these states couldn't tolerate the Jews being excluded, at least the rich banker Jews being excluded, uh, because they needed them and they needed their, their financial uh, capital. They also couldn't allow the Jews to exist as a completely separate people, uh, but they needed them also within in, in their equality. And this equivocality, this paradox, this contradiction um, is the beginning of, of her story. It goes like this. She tells the four-part story. If you want to go through, we'll start there, starting on page uh, 19. But basically, she says in the 17th and 18th centuries, um, you have the rise of absolute monarch monarchical states and wealthy court Jews who helped them. And these wealthy court Jews are in turn granted privileges. Uh, on page 20, she says the privileges of the court Jews had indeed an obvious similarity to the rights and liberties of the nobility or the aristocracy. And it was true that the Jews were as much afraid of losing their privileges and used the same arguments against equality as members of the aristocracy. So at the beginning, in the 17th and 18th centuries, after the um, 30 years war, Jews became court Jews and they were given uh, privileges, even though the main parts of the Jewish people uh, were, were not considered equal. After the French Revolution and the end of the 18th century, um, you see the rise of the state, of the nation state, and the equalization of citizenship. But you start to have privileges not just for court Jews, but also for larger wealthy classes of Jews, and finally for most of the Jews in Western Europe, not Eastern Europe. And this is because these new states needed capital. And it wasn't just a few individual Jewish bankers who could provide them capital, but you needed a whole inter-European um, Jewish system of, of money lending that began to provide for the, the capital that these new states needed. The third stage is that once imperialism undermines the nation state and brings the bourgeoisie into politics and state finance, Jews lost their competitive position. Suddenly there were other groups, imperialist corporations, often aristocratic, sometimes bourgeois, but certainly not um, Jewish, who began to demand financial support from the state and work with the state. And the Jews lost their strong connection with the state. And in the fourth stage, near the end of the 19th century, Western Jewry disintegrated as a group together with the nation state. So that's the that's the sort of four-part story she tells. The point of it is that the Jews, as moneylenders, stepped in when the state needed money. And thus, they became a privileged group, granted privileges by the state. And so she says on page 12, 
Thus, at the same time and in the same countries, emancipation meant equality and privileges. And this is really her core point here. Emancipation of the Jews meant that Jews were considered equal because of the revolutionary idea of equality, which was coursing through Europe at the time. But they weren't equal in the way everyone else was equal. They were equal differently. They were equal by being granted privileges. The controversial part, or at least one aspect of the controversial part, is that the states had an interest in, in, in granting Jews equality through privileges rather than regular equality um, because they wanted the Jews to remain different. They wanted them to be different because they wanted them to be able to lend the money. They didn't want them to assimilate and take up other business jobs and, and, and work in, in, in industry. They wanted them to be their bankers. But at the same time, the Jews had an interest in this too, the wealthy Jews, because by gaining their equality through privileges, it allowed two things. First, it allowed them to still be Jews. They didn't have to assimilate. And thus they could maintain themselves as Jews, even as they had the privileges of non-Jews and citizens. Secondly, it allowed them to keep their poorer brethren in Eastern Europe separate from them. They they became the privileged Jews, and then there were the non-privileged Jews, and that allowed them certain advantages, but it also allowed them to play a political role with the non-privileged Jews as the helpers of them and keep them in sort of a kind of um, uh, lower class uh, kind of condition. Uh, And so she says, you couldn't have had this situation emerge unless both the states and the Jews found an advantage of it. There were two other major equivocations or contradictions that she talks about, besides the one of equality and privilege, that you found equality while also finding equality through privileges. The second is that Jews are connected to the nation state. And in in the sense that I've just described, that they, they were the bankers and financiers of the nation state, and yet they were the non-national people. They were an international people. But then there was a third contradiction and equivocation, one that on page 23, she says is the most serious one. And she says that with so much political history, right, they're all their involvement in all of this work for the nation state, they had no political tradition or experience. And what she means by this is that the Jews never had their own state and they never therefore pursued a Jewish politics. And thus, they developed a function in Europe in which they had economic importance, but no political power. And they, she says they were uninterested in power. And this is on page 24 and 25. They're detached from power. They play the innocent. They'll bank for whoever needs them, and they stay out of politics. And she says this, of course, shows that the idea of a fantasy of a Jewish government or, you know, a Jewish conspiracy is ridiculous because the fact what the Jews did is avoid uh, getting involved in any power. And so what the Jews did in, instead, the way they defended themselves, she says, is they internalized a prejudice. The prejudice is that they could maintain their safety and their equality and their privileges by currying favor with the highest authorities, the princes, the, the premiers, the presidents, the national state governments. And they thus had a prejudice against the professional classes, the nobility, the lower classes. And they allied themselves with the top. And they thought as long as the top and they were on good terms, they would be protected. And that was in part what would prove their downfall. The next three sections of of the chapter are on different uh, levels, uh, different developments of anti-Semitism. So the the first one is called early anti-Semitism, which begins on page 28. Um, And the argument of this this discussion of early anti-Semitism is that there's a law. Well, this actually going to cover all three, but let me just state the law. The law, she says, and this is her law, you can call it RN's law on anti-Semitism, 
you know, and we'll talk about whether you think it makes sense. She says the law of political anti-Semitism on page 25 is that each class comes to be in conflict with the state. And as it becomes in conflict with the state, it becomes anti-Semitic. The point is that because the Jews were identified with the state, because they were identified with the highest levels and echelons of power, anti-Semitism emerges politically as a rhetorical strategy for each class as it comes to set itself against the state. And so she'll add to this on page 28 when she'll say that anti-Jewish feeling acquires political relevance only when it can combine with a major political issue or when Jewish group interests come into open conflict with those of a major class of society. I want to repeat that because I think it's absolutely central to, to, this, to this argument. Anti-Jewish feeling. Now, remember, I told you before that she separates social anti-Semitism from political anti-Semitism. Anti-Jewish feeling is a kind of prejudice or social anti-Semitism. It's we don't like Jews. And that can be bad. It can have bad consequences, but it's not dangerous in her mind. This anti-Jewish feeling, she says, acquires political relevance, therefore becomes political anti-Semitism and thus becomes dangerous only when it can combine with a major political issue or when Jewish group interests come into open conflict with those of a major class of society. So here, as she describes in the next 20 pages or so, we see the beginning of political anti-Semitism, as she calls it. The first beginning of it is what she calls early anti-Semitism, and it begins with the nobility. So the nobility is a class. And um, the nobility had privileges. And they begin to lose those privileges with the rise of equality. Well, who suddenly becomes the only group in society that is allowed to have privileges? Wealthy Jews. And so she says, um, Political anti-Semitism begins with the anti-Semitism of the nobles against the Jews. Um, they were angry that the Jews were allowed to keep some privileges and religious difference while the aristocracy lost theirs. There's a, a second stage of anti-Semitism is a kind of conservative or romantic uh, anti-Semitism, which is associated with the Catholics. And a third she'll call the liberal anti-Semitism. And all of these will be important. The beginnings of modern anti-Semitism, though, and modern parties of anti-Semitism begin at the end of the 19th century. At the time of financial scandals, the Jews were not involved, but small shop owners were. And those small shop owners were hit hard. And the lower middle classes and the petty bourgeoisie. And they came to think of the Jews as responsible because the Jews were bankers and the bankers often had to bail them out. Uh, and this led to a kind of social resentment against the Jews that became a highly, she says, explosive political element. All of this uh, is part of what she calls early anti-Semitism. Then uh, she talks about the first anti-Semitic parties. And here we get really the beginning of, this is on, on page 35 forward. And here you, you get a, a timeline uh, that leads to the late 19th century, 1890. And so um, where you're going to end up with what's, what she calls later in chapter chapter eight, the pan-European parties, pan-Germanism and pan-Slavism. Um, and that's going to be really the, the transition to totalitarianism. But these first anti-Semitic parties are the beginning of that. The first uh, of these anti-Semitic parties, she says, were characterized by two extraordinary claims. One, they claimed to be a party above all parties, thus to be associated with the nation as a whole. So the Germans as a whole, the French as a whole. And second, they claimed to be supranational. Thus, unlike, um, they weren't actually nationalists. They were pan-German, pan-Slavic, pan-French, etc. They were aimed at uniting ethnic uh, groups across um, national borders. And then the next instantiation is what she calls leftist anti-Semitism. And, and this is really uh, where she thinks anti-Semitism begins to transition into what will become totalitarianism. And she says that the core 
of leftist anti-Semitism was not in France, where it was too nationalistic, and it was not in Germany, where it was still too caught, caught up in Marxist ideas, and Marx was not an anti-Semite, he was a Jew. It was in Austria. And in Austria, anti-Semitism, she says, grew closest to imperialism. It sought to become pan-German. It sought to create a, a link with, with Germans in, in Switzerland and in, and in Germany. And, and this anti-Semitism where you had whole classes of people hating the Austrian state and seeking to destroy the Austrian state so that they could reunite with their German brethren in, in Germany and Switzerland. They came to see the state as the great obstacle to their, to their goals. And, and since the state was, again, associated with Jews, anti-Semitic Jewish rhetoric again emerged as an, an increasingly powerful way uh, to attack the state and unify um, the people of your political class and movement. So this is the argument she's making in, in this chapter, uh, that, that anti-Semitism in its political uh, valence, right? Not in its social valence, but in its political valence, begins uh, with this with this associate with this with this fundamental function of the Jewish banker that lasts for two hundred years in in Europe, and associates the Jew with the state. And then, once the state begins to fall apart in the late in the nineteenth century, and increasingly in the late nineteenth century, the nation state, you start to see these anti-Semitic parties emerge that are against the state and they take the Jew as um, in its association with the state as an enemy. And, and this is the rise of political anti-Semitism. It's not yet totalitarianism. It's not yet um, pan-European, pan-Slavism or pan-Germanism pan either. We'll get there in, in chapter eight, but it's the beginning. And, and, and what she really wants us to understand is that there is this difference between social and political anti-Semitism, and we have to understand that difference. You know, today, we focus on and concern mostly with what she would call social anti-Semitism or social racism or social feminism or social anti-women, you know, misogyny. She's interested in um, that difference. And in this chapter, she's trying to argue that there's a historical reason that the Jews were chosen as the group to be associated with the state and thus to be discriminated against in political uh, life because of their connection to the state and because um, of their uh, general embrace of living, of, of acquiring equality, not through assimilation into the national people, but through privileges. It was this embrace of privileges, the connection to the state that she says gave rise to modern anti-Semitism. All right, I'm going to stop there. It's a complicated chapter. There's a whole lot of history in it. It's a lot of history a lot of us don't know. You know, I've been teaching this book for 20 some odd years. And, you know, every year I do it, I look at one or two of the, you know, figures that she talks about or 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 movement she talks about to try and learn more about it um but it's it's not a world i knew when i began teaching this book um and it's very complicated look forward to uh hearing people's thoughts on it i already see there's a lot of questions already i do look this is these are complicated these are controversial issues there's there's sensitive issues really try and do your best to not attack a person you can attack ideas. You can attack. You can say I disagree, but but make an effort to make that distinction. And I look forward to the conversation. Hannah, how are you? Hi. Um, well, you know, I'm a little exercised because of all the things I've read by Arendt. This chapter is, I mean, her theory of anti-Semitism um, has been challenged by 
some really great thinkers, uh, theologians and political scientists alike. Um, the strict division between modern and quote unquote ancient or whatever anti-Semitism is really to me very false. Um, I think she underestimates and does not know of the role of religion and um, and the ongoing, pervasive, eternal almost role of the, let's say the witness people myth that Stephen Haynes, an American uh, Christian theologian identified in which um, uh, you know, the belief that whatever happens to the Jews for good or ill is an expression of God's providential justice, you know, and that is an ongoing thread throughout history. And it cannot be divorced from, from anti-Semitism as a whole. Um, also, you know, Political scientists, I read uh, an article by Shlomo Avineri, who said that Hannah Arendt was wrong about anti-Semitism, the rise of modern anti-Semitism coinciding with the rise of national, with the, with the uh, fall of nationalism. He said it was in fact the reverse. Um, so, and then also, uh, and I, you know, I have a lot of example. I have some examples of that. If you're interested, this article appeared well many places. But um, he says that um, uh, um, her key statement, which pervades her entire discussion of anti-Semitism, is that quote: "Modern anti-Semitism grew in proportion as traditional nationalism declined." and reached its climax as the exact moment when the European system of nation states and its precarious balance of power crashed. He says there's no historical support for this contention, and research shows that the opposite is true. It was the rise of the modern nation site and the challenges it faced that led to the sharp increase in anti-Semitism. As Zeev Sternhall has shown, the rise of integral nationalism at the end of the 19th century in France was channeled in the Dreyfus Affair into extreme anti-Semitism, and studies by George Moss and Peter Polzer indicate a similar link in Germany and Austria. And he goes on. Finally, I'd like to say that it's interesting because I really thought Eichmann in Jerusalem was brilliant, and I didn't really, uh, so many Jews uh, in Israel wouldn't allow it to be uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem printed until uh, much later, um, decades after it was published, but the Jews it it, it around so aroused so much visceral uh, disturbance. But I I experienced it a little bit in this chapter where she talks about co responsibility on uh, page six. So, but it's complicated because the fact is when you force people into various roles and you force people into various positions, they then adopt behaviors that feed into their disempowerment and feed into all that stuff. Also remember that, that uh, Hitler despised, uh, linked the Jews with Bolshevism. And it, it was really one of the things that really spurred him on his path. Okay. Thanks, Anna. Um, so uh, obviously, there's a lot in in yeah. in what Hannah's um, uh, talking about. Um, a few things. Uh, one, so Shlomo Shlomo Avenari, who's a, a well-respected political theorist, um, and and many other people uh, disagree with Hannah Arendt, right? Uh, on 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 the question of the relation between nationalism and anti-Semitism, that's true. That's that's great. Uh, we we then have to ask, well, what do we think? Um, there's no doubt that the majority of historians uh, disagree with Hannah Arendt on this. Uh, I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't. I, I don't think that's uh, a controversial claim. And that was true when she wrote it, and she knew it, and she 
repeats over and over again that historians completely get this wrong. Um, uh, and so if you are unconvinced by, by her argument, right, uh, you know, that's going to change how you, how you view her argument. So I, I, all I can say is we have to make the argument, um, you know, 19th century uh, French extreme anti-Semitism, as you said, was nationalistic. She says that uh, in this book, in this chapter, on page 48 to, to 50. Uh, she says nationalistic, nationalistic anti-Semitism, harmless when compared with modern movements, was never a monopoly of reactionaries and chauvinists in France, right? Uh, you have uh, Louis Ferdinand Céline, one of the great anti-Semites of all time. But she says there's a reason that Hitler and the Nazis didn't take uh, Celine seriously. And there's a reason, she says, that even in Vichy France, that the, the, the Germans didn't take the anti-Semites in Vichy France seriously. And the reason uh, is because nationalist anti-Semitism, in the end, is not going to be effective. If you want to, if you want to lead to a totalitarian or, or fascist government. And so the, the problem we have here, right, is that there's no doubt that there was a nationalist anti-Semitism. That's true. She fully understands that. And that that nationalist anti-Semitism has emerged for, has been around for centuries. Well, certainly since nationalism has been around and it bears relation to medieval and earlier anti-Semitism. The problem is not a historical problem, right? Arendt agrees with that. Abenari and all the other historians agree with that. Arendt is making an argument about totalitarianism. And what she's saying is that if you want to understand totalitarianism, you can't base it on nationalist uh, assumptions and nationalist anti-Semitism or any other nationalism because it wasn't nationalist. and um, then we then we have to look other you know in other places, and so the problem is that Avenari and others, you know, I don't want to be, I'll just be direct. They don't understand her argument. Now her argument could be wrong, right? But they don't understand it. They in any way come to grips with it and and take it seriously. They just say she's wrong historically because there was still nationalistic uh, anti-Semitism. Of course there was. Uh, she would never deny that. Um, but what she's going to say is that's not what led to totalitarianism. Um, that's been around for 100 years, 200 years. It's been around for a long time. Um, if you want to understand totalitarianism, you've got to understand the driving force of it, which was not nationalist. And, and so we need to start to look at the emergence of a new form of anti-Semitism. She calls modern ideological anti-Semitism. Um, and she's looking for that. Uh, you know, it, it's convincing to me, but that doesn't mean it should be convincing to you, Hannah. I mean, but all I'll say is, you know, reading, quoting me Avenari, right? And saying, well, she's wrong. He thinks she's wrong doesn't help because he doesn't understand her. And he's never made an effort to understand her. He just reads what she says and says, oh, well, there's historical na and national anti-Semitism and therefore she's wrong. Um, she's, he's not trying to understand her argument about totalitarianism. You know, I don't think historically their argument, they actually disagree. I think she's adding something else, which is that a new form of anti-Semitism emerging, and we have to deal with that. Now, on the on, on the question of um religion. Religion. Co-responsibility, you mean? Well, my other major point was, you know, about like this, it sort of seems so ridiculous that she makes this break between as if uh oh, okay. religious religious anti-semitism uh, stopped and then it's and then the modern took over again, I don't think this, is the same, this is the same mistake that i was just talking about right she doesn't say that religious anti-semitism stopped right god the people who are arguing about god's providential justice are still there what she's saying is that doesn't, that's not what's driving the movement of Nazism. Okay. Part of what she's doing in this chapter, 
right, is trying to give you the history of these emergent anti-Semitic parties and saying, you know, if you look at what they're talking about, they're not talking about God's providential justice. And they're not talking about nationalism. They're talking about pan-Germanism and they're talking about class interests and they're talking about the state and 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 burying the state. And this is all going to become important when we get to chapter uh, eight on continental imperialism and the pan movements. And in a way, this chapter, chapter two, is the precursor to chapter eight in, in chapter eight, where she's going to sort of really try and make the case that um, it was the pan, it was the ideological nature of pan-Germanism and pan-Bolshevism more than anything else, more than religious anti-Semitism, more than nationalism that um, opened the door to um, totalitarianism. Oh, and thank so, you. Thank you. That was very, very helpful. Thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, Peter. Hi. Um, I, I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I feel kind of caught in the middle here. I'm not thinking that some of us who are contending with Arendt are saying uh, Arendt, uh, it, it's possible to may not be wrong. She She might be wrong. She might not be wrong. I think it's like the critique I might make uh, might be wrong if I say simplistically she's wrong. I think there's something within what she's saying or how she's saying it that I'd be critiquing and not this idea that there's a tie between how Jews are perceived, identified with these court Jews and how that unfortunately corresponds with rising nationalism, this creation of a nation state and the power it has to identify some with and some without. Um, but having said that, I guess the question for me is a couple of ways in which I find what she's saying a little Perilous is the Jews to begin with. What the Jew, there's something the Jews did, there's something the Jews choose to do, and there's something that's perceived as what Jews do. Those are three different things, I think. And right off the bat with what the Jews did, the court Jews are not the Jews. Uh, so it's a little tough consistently to hear the phrase the Jews doing so many things in this chapter when we're talking about a few privileged, a very small percentage of the majority of the population, certainly of Jews in Europe. It could be there's a little more privilege and a little more wealth in Germany, but even still, that's a very small percentage of a small percentage of population. And yet uh, she's linking this, if it's what people do, to a very small group of not even half the Jewish population, since these are all men. There are no Jewish women who are doing these things. So, so many ways in which Jews, as identified with just this group, would then allow me to say Christians are exploiters and are uh, imperialists and are, no, it's those who have power get to really choose to do and do things. And this is what Jews, at least that group, is allowed to do initially before equality becomes the buzzword in that time. And uh, they they take advantage of the one space in which they're allowed to do it within their religion and the Christians are kept from it. It's not that different from a lot of the ways in which finance, the financial word, world today has been created. First, Jews were allowed to enter into uh, some of the more unsavory parts of, of, of law uh, practice, and then slowly everybody else was allowed to. But I guess if it's what they chose to do, that's an even bigger problem, because even if it's all the Jews, even if it's just those Jews, again, choices are limited. And again, it goes back to this notion of responsibility from the previous chapter. Are you responsible for the restrictive nature of the world you live in when you have no power and the others have the power? I think it's a tough um, tough meal to eat if you're being told you're responsible for the one thing you could do to make it in the world, in a world that prizes money at that time, especially. And in a way in which you want to be something. And yes, the Jews could not be separated. Are they the ones who, I mean, this is the same things that sometimes are argued against folks of color. We're not separated. You're separating us. You know, Plymouth Rock fell on us. So that kind of thing is, landed on us rather, that kind of thing is just a reversal of the actual order of events. And it makes it tough again to listen to. If it's, a if it's talk about choices, sure, they could have chosen many other things. Sure, any average Jew could have chosen not to be separate by, let's say, going to synagogue on Sundays or doing all the things that Christians do. Well, that means I'd stop being Jewish. I'd stop, I would deny myself. So that's a choice. And that's the choice Jews were given from the beginning. I mean, that's the choice they had in, in Spain. England kicked them out without even giving them a choice. I mean, this is a history of nonstop. Jews don't get to choose. They can choose amongst two choices, slim and none. 
And some of Jews did that. But if it's the perception of Jews, I think that's where I can understand the point she's making, that Jews are perceived, obviously, by the most visible. And if it's the most visible, then that connection with the nationalist enterprise, uh, with the, with the well, first with the dying um, royal um, Nobel, Nobel enterprise and the separation there, and then with the nationalist enterprise, I can see how that might make step make sense, but that's got to be a little better described and more nuanced than the way it comes off in that chapter. For me, yeah. So, so thanks. Um, thanks. You know, I just want to be clear. I think I said this last week a couple times, maybe also in response to you as well. There's no argument. There's no argument here that the Jews are responsible in any kind of moral or ethical sense, right? That's not the argument she's making. So there's no claim that the Jews made the wrong choice and that's therefore they're at fault for what they're doing. There's no blame at all. And there's not, I mean, I would challenge anyone reading this book or by the way, Eichmann in Jerusalem to find any sentence or any implication of blame um, that, that she's placing on the Jews. There's none of that, as far as I can tell. Um, uh, she's she's seeking to understand something, right? Um, and remember, the, the driving sense of the whole book is understanding or comprehension is the unpremeditated facing up to and resisting of reality, whatever it may be. She believes that you have to understand what happened. Now, um, you know, it is not a blame game, but it's attempt to understand to say that Jews had a choice. And that if they wanted to remain Jews, they didn't have any other choice but to not assimilate. She agrees with that, and she's not in favor of assimilation. She's not blaming the Jews for it. But she's saying that that led the Jews to take certain choices foisted upon them, as you rightly say. In such a way that um, they allowed them to become separate, even if they got privileges that allowed them to also, um, uh, you know, live in good ways. A very small number of privileged Jews, and 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 both the privileged Jews and others accepted that bargain and said, "We don't want the poorer Jews, the mass Jews, to come in because." They're going to take away our privileges. Now, again, she doesn't blame them for that either. Now, some people may, may. Some people say, oh, well, they should have had more, you know, interreligious solidarity or whatever. She doesn't. She's simply trying to say, here's what happened. And why is she doing it? Why is she simply trying to understand what happened? Because she's saying that there is, um, that the that one of the, problems that emerged is that because the Jews acted this way and because they didn't develop their own political traditions, their own political experiences, they didn't recognize the moment when social discrimination began to turn into political discrimination, right? This is on page 25, and I haven't read this part or cited this part, so let me just point it out. She says on 25 in the last paragraph before the break, the paragraph beginning, just as the Jews, she says, just as the Jews ignored completely the growing tension between state and society, they were also the last to be aware that circumstances had forced them into the center of the conflict. They therefore never knew how to evaluate anti-Semitism, or rather never recognized the moment when social discrimination changed into political argument. For more than 100 years, anti-Semitism had slowly and gradually made its way to, to almost all social strata in almost all European countries until it emerged suddenly as the one issue upon which an almost unified opinion could be achieved. The law according to which the process this process developed was simple. Each class of society which came into a conflict with the state as such became anti-Semitic because the only social group which seemed to represent the state were the Jews. So, again, she's trying to understand the emergence of political anti-Semitism, these emergence of parties that were anti-Semitic parties. That's 
that's to her was new, right? Not just that there was social antisemitism, not that there was Jew hatred, but that there were parties that made it as core planks of their party to discriminate against Jews. And she's saying that um, this happened and this becomes the law of the rise of this new form of political antisemitism that each class becomes antisemitic when they turn against the state. And she's trying to make sense of that. Um, uh, which is a far cry from blaming Jews for it or blame, you know, at all. Uh, I don't think that's at issue. But if these are choices that they're making, then I don't know how you can't be somehow intimating a blame or a responsibility at the very least. And I don't even know the word responsibility without the possibility of choice. So clearly they're choosing something wrong. You say they're naive. She says they're naive. They're ignorant. It's interesting. I looked in the index because I haven't read the entirety of the book and I don't see the, uh, the mention of Zionism. I don't see the mention of Herzl. There are other movements within the Jewish community of the world at that time that are not necessarily given to the per- current man in power, the, the, the you know, when in Rome, they're, they're ready to go in a different direction. Again, everything they choose to do is at the mercy of those who control every choice they make other than their own, which they then blame for is how it feels. Yeah. So that she may be saying this or not isn't isn't necessarily relevant. Some might read it that way, and therefore she's open to that critique. And you're defending her beautifully, and I'll question it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think this is a you know Jerry Cohen last week said that we're reading this book today so differently than it was read when it came out. I mean, it's interesting that when this book came out, there was no there was no real. Um, critique of these chapters, right? These chapters were were read as incredibly in, insightful, but not as um, blaming the victim. And it wasn't really until you know the 1960s after Eichmann and Jerusalem that people went back to these chapters and 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 began to read it this way. Um, uh, you know, uh, all I can say is that today we have internalize this view that if you say, oh, a group made a choice and that choice led to this, it's their fault. Um, She's not reading it that way, right? Responsibility doesn't mean moral responsibility. Unless you add moral before it, it just means it's a response. It's an answer to. Um, There were all sorts of responses. There were all sorts of of actions. Um, You know, they, they're the people make these decisions for whole sorts of complicated reasons. Um, she's interested in, she, you know, in the end, she's not interested. She's interested in how totalitarianism emerged. She's making an argument and this may be the most controversial, I think, part of her argument that anti-Semitism is essential to totalitarianism. It's controversial because when she turns the book into a larger account of totalitarianism, which includes Bolshevism, it's harder to make the case that anti-Semitism was essential to Bolshevism, although you could. But what she's then going to do is say, well, there are two different ideologies that drove the two different totalitarianisms. One was a racist anti-Semitism, and one was um, a, a classist um, uh, anti-bourgeoisism, uh, if you will. Um, and and she's going to sort of, uh, you know, m- make that case. But because she's a Jew and, and, and was in Germany and is largely right, began writing this focused on Germany and not, and not the Soviet Union, um, this hundred page beginning of the book, you could argue gives an outsized, um, uh, account of anti-Semitism within her whole argument. And I say that, I mean, if you, if any of you were still in this reading group, I think six or seven, six years ago or so, when we first read this book in this reading group, you'll remember, or maybe remember that I did the entirety of the anti-Semitism book in one class, um, in one session. Again, not because I don't think it's important, but because if you're trying to understand totalitarianism, it's unclear at times, some of the arguments are actually very important. 
but there's a lot else going on here. And she says that she says in one of the prefaces, look, no one else had written a book on anti-Semitism. I did all this research on it and I'm going to include a lot of this material, which, you know, is not pertinent to my overarching argument because I think it's important and people aren't paying attention to it. But the key argument, you know, that she's trying to make uh, is that um, anti-Semitism helps lead into totalitarianism. Why? Because it's the beginnings of a transnational political ideology. How did that happen? Anti-Semitism comes to be associated with anti-statism. How'd that happen? Because of the connection between Jewish bankers and the state. Jewish bankers in the state, Jews in the state, the emergence of anti-Semitic parties against the state, pan-Germanism. Oh, and then we get to imperialism, which leads to totalitarianism. That's the arc. That's the arc, right? And, you know, there's a lot of other stuff in here and it's some of it can be really fascinating pearls as Vigdis was saying and some of it you know is 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 is, is controversial thank you so much for listening make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.